Good morning, everybody. Uh, we want to raise about $8,000 to send Olivia and Emily out to the field. And so we'd love for you to give. And uh, doesn't matter if your gift's small or larger. Uh, the fact that you're giving shows ownership of our sending here at Open Door. And we're so grateful that we can send these two. And so uh, be praying and be giving and uh, go greet them on the way out. Also, don't forget to sign up for our first weekend workshop of the year will be this upcoming Friday, Saturday. So it's not long, Friday evening after dinner, and then Saturday until noon. We're going to be emphasizing prayer, which is essential for us. And so we want you to come uh, give us your, your evening and your morning on Saturday. I think it'll be well worthwhile. Just go online, sign up, and that'll be this Friday. It's a busy weekend, is it not? Uh, Super Bowl, who you got? Bengals, anybody? Okay, couple. Rams, anybody? Not as much? Yeah, very unimpressive. Uh, yeah, I think, the, uh, I think the advertisers are worried about the Super Bowl. <laughs> no strong suit, but we'll enjoy the game. It's Valentine's weekend, I guess. Tomorrow's Valentine's Day. That's your thing. I, uh, I did ask my wife if she'd be my Valentine. She said yes. So I'm uh, covered. And uh, matter of fact, there's a more important celebration that we have, and it, it, it's always around Valentine's, actually. So the second February of the year uh, is Kay and I's uh, anniversary here at Open Door. So we celebrate 23 years at Open Door this Sunday. It's a joy. Thank you. Uh, we, we love this church, and we love you all. It's, it's, it's a joy to serve. And as, look, looking back at 23 years, it seems like so much has changed, but then so much is the same. I mean, things just tend to happen in circles. When we came to Open Door, there were wars and rumors of wars going on, and, and now we have those same things today. The, the government, the economy was in crisis. That was like Y2K, if you can remember that far back. And now we've got the same crisis happening in the economy and government. And, of course, the Olympics, you know, they, they're cyclical. And it's interesting this year's Olympics is sort of shadowed by the news of the Chinese government that has imprisoned, some estimate, almost a million of the Uyghur people. Uh, put them in re-education camps. If you know history, you know how dangerous that can be. And and then we just we we continue to live in an unrighteous world. Unrighteous. And there is unrighteousness, great and small, and yet it's still all unrighteous. And the Bible tells the truth that we are all unrighteous. And the question, as we dive into what God had to do to an extremely unrighteous world in Genesis 6, is what, what do you do with your unrighteousness? I mean, how do you weigh that? How do you weigh the fact that you are unrighteous before a holy God? What's to be done with that? What, what Genesis helps us to understand is that our God is a covenant God. And he keeps his promises. And God's faithful covenant will bring us to salvation in Christ, which will allow us to escape his righteous judgment 
And we're going to see that today as, as we look at one of the most dramatic events that have happened ever. And so let's dive in. Genesis 6. When mankind began to multiply on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever, because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterwards when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them. They were the powerful men of old, the famous men. Moses likes to list generations in, in tens, and he is giving us this list of the generations from Adam uh, and through his son Seth, all the way to a man named Noah, ten generations. They lived very long lives. And now we find ourselves at the time when, when Noah walked on the earth. And Moses is going to record the history just prior to the great flood and the way that Moses describes the earth at that time is that it was completely corrupt. It was totally unrighteous. Now in verse 2, there's a statement about this group called the sons of God, and they intermarried and they cohabitated with beautiful women on the earth. There's, there's an interpretive question here as to what this group represents. Just to be honest, there's multiple views on this, it's not easy to, to know exactly what Moses is describing. I'm just going to share what I feel are the two most likely positions and then give you what I believe to be true. Now, one position is that these sons of God represent the, the children who were born in the line of Seth. Remember, there, there was both the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan and his offspring these two seeds now that form themes that carry us throughout the Bible, the seed of the promise, the seed of the righteous, and the seed of the unrighteous. And then possibly what's happening here is Moses is recalling that at some point in time when, when people live so many years, uh, that the, those in the line of Seth, the sons of God, they intermarried with those in the line of Cain, seed of the unrighteous. And as a result of that, the children they produced were unrighteous, and they just promoted their unrighteousness to an extreme extent. It's a, it's a very good position. It's not the one that I hold, but I think there's validity to it. My position is a little bit more dramatic than that. I actually understand the sons of God is referring to demons that had fallen, fallen angels, whom we know have the ability at times to you know, take on personification. They are able to eat. And I believe apparently at least for a moment in, in history, they were able to cohabit with earthly women. And in doing so, they took for themselves women that they thought were beautiful. They lusted after these women and God saw it as being a horrific and unnatural union which then led him to, to see 
the evil and the unrighteousness that was apparent throughout the earth. I, I think that we should separate these from this group called the Nephilim. Um, Moses later would describe this group of giants who lived in Canaan land. And uh, there was a lot of rumors about them. And I think Moses is basically saying, look, these types of guys have always been around. Don't worry about them. Um, but for now, I think they, they're they different than these sons of God. And, and the reason why I get this position is because this is the position of both uh, the Old Testament and the early uh, scholars of the New Testament, the early church held to this. And I think Peter actually was trying to help us to understand this very unnatural and sinful union that took place in Second Peter, which was our scripture reading today. For if God did not spare angels who sinned, but cast them into hell. So I think what happened was that just as God uh, cast Satan and the fallen angels down to earth, this particular group of demons then were cast further down to the very depths of hell, chained in hell, for all of the demons to see God's judgment, they were cast into hell, uh, delivered in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment that would be final judgment. And if he did not spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness and seven others, when he brought the flood on the world of the ungodly. So I, I see this incredibly wicked and dramatic event where these demons left their spiritual domain, violating God's natural order by marrying, or you might even consider molesting earthly women. And God saw this as an extreme aberration of creation. As a matter of fact, what verse 5 then says, when the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth, and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. So you, you've gotten to the point now where from Genesis 3, you had the fall. And because of the fall, death entered. And we know that was both spiritual death and physical death. And, and because the sin nature was now being passed on from generation to generation, and people had the ability to live so long. You just have to imagine that people had gotten to the point where they were just about as bad as they could be. I mean, just imagine expressing your sinfulness for nearly a thousand years. How bad would you be? How wicked could you be? How wicked could you be tomorrow if you let your sin nature run wild? Well, how wicked could you be if you were 800 and you let your sin nature go. And unrighteousness became the totality of God's once good and glorious creation. To the point where humanity hardly bore God's image. And so in Genesis 1, we, we have this picture where, where God saw all that he made. And he declared it to be very good. But now in Genesis 6, verse 2, and Genesis 6, verse 5, we see God and he saw, but it wasn't very good, was it? No, it was, it was wicked. It was unrighteous. 
then the Bible says in verse 6, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was deeply grieved. How do you weigh your unrighteousness? One thing you need to know is that God is grieved by it. He's grieved over it. God was incredibly grieved because he saw nothing but unrighteousness on his creation. And yet there was one man (laughs) named Noah who had found favor with the Lord. God had to do something. I mean, he's a just God and he is a righteous judge. And so what God decided to do is he he said, I will judge this world that I created and all of its unrighteousness. And it was dramatic. He said, I will wipe out mankind whom I created off the face of the earth. I'm going to wipe off all the animals, all the creatures. I'm just, I'm going to undo my creation. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord, because even though God declared judgment upon the entirety of the earth, he still maintained his covenant obligation and his covenant promise that the seed of the woman would continue until a redeemer was born who would ultimately crush Satan. And it was Noah whom God found favor with. That word favor is a really important word. The Old Testament word is a very simple word called chesed. It just simply means that there is this loving kindness of God, even upon a sinner. And the best New Testament word for that is a word that we call grace. And so Noah, even though Noah was a sinner, he was born with a sin nature, God chose grace and favor upon Noah Noah was the only righteous man on the earth. And God then gives this warning to Noah in verse 9. And and Moses writes this. He says, these are the family records of Noah. In your Bible, it may say these are the generations of Noah. Of Noah. And that's a very important phrase because the way that the, the book of Genesis is divided up <laughs> is that Moses will take these sections and say, these are the generations and these are the generations. And so now we see the, the ending of this first great generation from Adam or Seth to Noah. And then these are the generations of Noah and then they'll describe his sons. And then we'll see this second record from Noah all the way until we get to a man called Abram. And then we'll have, these are the generations of Abram. So that's the way that this book is divided up. And so we begin here with the generations or the records of Noah, who is described, and we will see this again when it comes to Abram. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless among his contemporaries. And Noah walked with God. In the Christian life, when we receive the righteousness that comes from our faith in Christ, the New Testament tells us, now walk with him. Walk with him. 
And Noah was, was one who walked with God. Now, his great, great, great grandfather was a man named, named Enoch who was righteous and he walked with God. And if you remember the story, one day he was walking with God and he just walked right into heaven. Well, well, Noah won't have that much grace. He'll have to experience something different. But Noah was a righteous man amongst all else. And he was the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And you need to take note of these three sons because they will also become lineages, especially Shem and Ham, where we will see the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent continue. Verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with wickedness. And God saw, saw how corrupt the earth was, for every creature had corrupted its way on earth. Then God said to Noah, I've decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness. Because of them, I am going to destroy them along with the earth. Six, and now verse 14, God says to Noah, make a boat. Build yourself an ark. And so Noah did exactly that, and the details of the ark are listed after verse 14. A three-story boat that would carry his family and at least two of, of every unclean animal and seven of every clean animal. And we will see the separation between clean animals and unclean animals later when we get to the book of Exodus. And Moses would have understood this. So bring in at least seven of every clean animal and a couple, male and female, uh, of all of the unclean animals so that eventually they will be able to multiply themselves. And so <laughs> the ark was built, and it took a very, very long time. It was the first cruise ship, and yet only eight people got tickets. So God used it as a floating zoo. My wife and I went on a, on a cruise on our, our honeymoon. We, we hardly had two nickels to scrape together. We, I mean, we were privileged. My father had passed away. We were privileged to use the money we had saved for our wedding and honeymoon to bury him. And uh, so what do you do? We've got 400 bucks. We get the cheapest three-day cruise to the Bahamas. And these tickets put us in the belly of that ship right where the servants were. And, um, and we had no, you know, this tiny room, no windows. Uh, it's like attached to a bathroom, kind of. And I didn't care about looking out. I had something to look at inside that little cabin. And we enjoyed, we enjoyed that, that cruise. Well, Noah, he builds a big boat. And he does so under the Lord's commands. And in verse 17, the Lord says to Noah, I need you to understand something. I am going to bring a flood, flood waters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But Noah, I will establish my covenant with you. And you will enter the ark with your sons and your wife and your sons' wives. He says to Noah, I'm going to undo what I did. I'm going to reverse engineer creation. 
I'm going to destroy everything. But Noah, I promise, the covenant I established with Adam and Eve, I'm going to reestablish it with you. And Noah then becomes now the, the next Adam. He will be the next priest king over the world. And so now Noah's building this boat decades and decades, 100 plus years. And what's Noah doing? He's building and he's preaching. And he's building and he's preaching. Because as Peter told us, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He preached for 100 years and no one repented. No one repented. I mean, at some point in time, you'd think, this giant boat, maybe God's up to something. Maybe I ought to listen to this guy. No one did. Well, now all these animals start flocking into the boat. Noah's not out catching them. They're just walking into the boat. You'd think someone would say, what's going on here? Noah says, you're about to die is what's going on. No one listened. There's none righteous. No, not one. There's none who do, who do good. If you have some unfortunate illusion that you're good or that you're righteous before a holy God, you are grossly mistaken, my friend. You know the inclinations of your heart. Well, God knows it better. He knows it better. And unless you have the strongest desire to escape the judgment of God and you appeal to him through faith in what his son has accomplished for you on the cross, then you're no better than the multitudes that Noah preached to for over 100 years. Don't, don't think of yourself as different from them. You might be less unrighteous than they were, but you're still unrighteous. But we all are. And so Noah, he, he preached and he built and he preached and he built and then God finally said, okay, it's done. Noah, chapter 7, I need for you to get into the boat. You and all your household. For I have seen that you alone are righteous before me in this generation. So you take the clean animals with you, get in the boat. And Noah was 600 years old when the flood came and when the water covered the earth. Noah and his sons entered the boat. God sealed it up. In verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, so Mo Moses is now being very specific, which means that we should consider this to be a literal historical account. The author of this is giving us real history. Now, what's fascinating to me is that I have in my Bible the literal account of the global flood. But do you know, I can go to nearly every major culture on earth, and if I look at their history, they have an account of a great flood. No matter where you go, there is an account of a great flood. I'm fascinated by Chinese culture. And in the ancient Chinese language, the number eight, of course, Chinese, uh, they communicate through these symbols. 
the, the Chinese character for the number eight is a boat. <laughs> you think that's ironic or is that providential? Every culture has a story of the great flood. We just happen to have the little history of, of this story. And Moses is being very specific here as to when the floodgates of the sky were opened and the rain fell on the earth for 40 days and for 40 nights. And you have to imagine the difference then and now. Then the earth was different. There was a greater sense of of, of health and people could live a very long time and the environment was different and there wasn't great devastating floods or natural disasters. And, and then in a moment, everything changes. And when God had taken this void that he had made and he began to separate land from sea, and then he fashioned it and he filled in the, the, the land. And now you've got flying creatures and, and animals. And then he places people made in his own image there. But the water is all contained by the power of a sovereign God. And God just simply says, I'm undoing it. What I had separated and formed and filled, I return back to void. And he reverse engineers his creation because he was so grieved at the unrighteousness. Our righteous God is still grieved at unrighteousness. And so for 40 days and, and for 40 nights, the earth changes. And this dramatic flood, it reconfigures the world until what we see it as today. And it just carves out something different. And now we'll have seasons, as we will read in a moment. Well, six long months later, chapter 8 picks up the story Because everything died. Let me go back to chapter 7, verse 22. Everything with its breath of the spirit of life in its nostrils, everything on the dry uh, land died. He wiped out every living thing that was on the face of the earth from mankind to livestock to creatures that crawl to the birds in the sky. They were all wiped off. Only Noah was left and, and the animals that were with him on the ark. And, and for nearly six months, there was nothing but flood, chapter 8. And this is a, a statement that you'll see Moses write again and again. But God remembered. God remembered. We're going to see this after the children of Israel have been slaved for 400 years and they're crying out to God. And Moses is going to say, God remembered. He remembered his promise. Here, 150 days later, God remembered Noah, the one who he had found favor with. He's still floating. <laughs> The water had, had gotten so high it had surpassed the highest of mountains. Yes, of course, it was a global flood. It covered everything. But then God remembered Noah. 
And he remembered all the wildlife and, and the livestock that were on the ark. So God causes wind to pass over the earth. And, and again, just like Genesis 1, we begin to see separation again. And the power of God subdues the power of the water and the power of the flood. And the sources of the watery depths and the floodgates of the sky were closed and the rain finally stopped and the water steadily receded from the earth so that by the end of the 150 days, the water had decreased significantly. And the ark came to rest in the seventh month. Does that remind you of anything? What did God do on the seventh day? Rest. So once again, God says, okay, time to recreate. And Noah, take a Sabbath with me. Rest. Rest now, boat. On the 17th day of the month on the mountains of Ararat. And the water receded. And eventually, Noah sent out a couple of birds, and one took and brought back a little twig. And, and Noah realized, okay, finally, it, it, it's time that we can finally be delivered from this ark. Now, some people see the ark as a symbol of, of salvation. I, I don't. I, I see the whole ark story as, as an imperative symbol of God's judgment. I see that only for the grace of God was Noah saved. Look, we all deserve to be buried under the flood of God's wrath. But for those who are in Christ, they choose another path. They decide to be buried under the fountain of Christ's blood. Because there is a fountain filled with blood, and it's drawn from Emmanuel's vein. And for any sinner who submerges himself beneath that flood, they will lose all of their guilty stays. Amen? Choose your flood. Choose your flood. And so, in chapter 9, we, we finally have now uh, Noah being blessed by God. He had done exactly what, what God had, had told him to do. And, and, and it's interesting to me that as, as the creatures are now uh, leaving the ark, and, 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 and as they're leaving the ark, God is kind of renewing his, his initial commission, go forth and multiply. Chapter 8 and in verse 17 they will spread over the earth and be fruitful and multiply the earth. So he says to all the animals, okay, go do what I initially intended you to do. And, and Noah, the same for you now in, in your lineage. And what's interesting is that as soon as Noah left the ark, I'm in chapter 8, verse 20, he builds an altar to the Lord. He builds an altar to the Lord. And he offers burnt offerings on the altar. Now, we're going to see the significance of the burnt offering later, especially when we get to the book of Leviticus, where God is going to ordain the way in which a sinner worships him. 
And it has to be by way of sacrifice. You can't come to the tent of God, a holy God, unless you provide covering for your sin. And that covering uh, is, is an important word that we, we, we call atonement. Atonement. Unless your sins are atoned for, you cannot come to a holy God and worship him. You can't. And so the burnt offering is when you would take a sacrificial animal, that animal would be killed and the blood would be spent and the animal would be laid on the sacrifice. And then that the blood of that animal becomes a substitute for your sin. And it covers you. It atones you. Now, it was just temporary. Until Christ came, it was all temporary, but it would, it would cover you, cover your sin. That was the burnt offering. And Noah, he was a sinner. Even though he was a righteous man, he, he still understood his sin, and he knew he needed for his sin to be atoned for. And so he, made, he offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma of the offering, he received it and he said, I now uh, am, am blessed by this offering. And in the New Testament now, we, we're going to be told that, that we offer ourselves as living sacrifice. And, and we're going to be taught in, in the New Testament that we don't have to come to church with animals anymore because there has already been an atoning sacrifice that has been made for us. And so then we are to, as Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, be imitators of God as children that he loves and, and walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for you as a sacrifice, as a fragrant aroma to God. Yes, God accepted the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for you. He accepted the blood that was spilt. And here God is accepting the sacrifice that Noah gives, the atonement that covered him. And God then, he says, well done, Noah, and I'm going to recommit myself to you. And he makes this promise, chapter 8, verse 21. I will never again curse the ground because of human beings. Even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. God says, look, I know the sin nature will continue. I know people will still be born into sin. I know that there will still be unrighteousness, but I refuse. I will not destroy my creation again by water, by flood. I won't do it again, and that is my promise to you. I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. Verse 22, as long as the earth endures, and that is from then up to this present day, there will be seasons. And there'll be time you plant your seed. And there'll be a time to harvest your seed. There'll be time when you can't plant. There'll be winter. And, and, and now we have the introduction of seasons and, and, and weather and, and, and natural disasters and, and all the like. There'll be cold, there'll be heat, there'll be summer, there'll be winter, there'll be day and night. This is not going to cease, but I will not destroy the earth again, not by flood. So God blessed Noah and his sons, chapter 9, and he gave them the same commission that he gave Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply the earth. And Noah, no, you are now the new priest king. You're now as Adam was, and you are to have dominion over all the creatures of the earth. 
And the fear and the terror of you will be in every living creature and every bird and every creature that crawls and all fish of the sea. They're all placed under your authority, priest king. You have dominion now. But Noah, you must not eat any meat with its lifeblood in it. And if you do, I will require a penalty for your life blood. Now we, again, we, we will find this when we get to Leviticus chapter 17, where, Mo, where God through Moses in the law is, is saying to Israel, you, you must not consume blood. And the reason why is, is because God sees that the blood represents life. Right? That, that's all. It does not mean that you can't eat your steak medium rare. You can do that. You're in the new covenant. Don't, don't worry. You don't have to burn your meat. <clears throat> but but they were, symbolically and spiritually, the blood represented life. It represented the existence of someone. And basically, what, what God is saying to, to Noah, now listen, you, you have dominion over all the creatures. And by the way, Noah, you are now privileged to eat meat. Can I get an amen? Yes. We can eat meat now. But remember, Noah, this is basically what he's saying. Respect life. Respect life. Especially you respect human life. I will require a penalty for your life, but I will require it from any animal or from any human. If someone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. Verse 6, here's the law. Here is what government should mandate. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans his blood will be shed, for God made humans in his image. The purpose of government is very simple. The purpose of government is to protect its people and to promote their welfare, period. It's very unfortunate that governments tend to go beyond that purpose. The purpose of government is simple. You protect people, and you judge those who kill people, and you promote the flourishing of people because people are made in the image of God. You be fruitful and multiply and spread out over the whole earth. God says, I'm establishing my covenant with you and your descendants. And this, this, this covenant now is, is something that I commit myself to. And in verse 12, I'm going to give you a sign of the covenant. Now, we're going to see this again, where when God makes a covenant with his people, he uses a symbol or a sign. And we'll see it with Abraham, where the symbol of the sign of the covenant is circumcision. Well, well, now, back here in the time of Noah, the covenant that God is making, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, I will not judge the earth with the great flood again, and the sign of my covenant is a rainbow. He says, I have placed my bow or my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and this earth. And whenever you see a rainbow, that's me saying to you, I'm not going to flood this earth again. I won't judge it like that. 
The rainbow is a symbol for God's people, you see. It, be, it belongs to God's people. I, I think it's very unfortunate that the symbol that God gave to us has been hijacked by a growing group that dishonors God's order, rebels against the way God has ordered humanity, and lives unnaturally. No, the rainbow is for us to know God, to believe in his covenant promise, and I want to claim it. I want to redeem it. Well, in chapter 9, now God is renewing his covenant. But in verse 18, unfortunately, we find ourselves back to Genesis chapter 3. Just as there was a fall in the garden, now there's a fall in the newly formed creation. Noah's sons who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham, Ham and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. Now, what's interesting is that it's not Ham, but it's Canaan that Moses is most concerned about. And the reason why is because you're going to see now these two lineages. The people of God, through the line of what was Seth, now Shem, the seed of the serpent. What was once Cain, now Canaan. And now Moses is going to take this very seriously because his people were about to enter into what land? Canaan's land, the land that belonged to Canaan. And they would go in to claim it. But there would be a forever conflict, you see, between these two lineages. So that's why he is referencing Canaan instead of Ham. All right, so here's what happens. Verse 20, Noah, like Adam, man of the soil, a farmer, a gardener, and he began planting a vineyard, like Adam, who had some fruit in the middle of his garden. Noah planted a vineyard, and he drank some of the wine, and he became drunk, and he got so drunk that he fell asleep naked in his tent. Here's the sin. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked. Rather than immediately repenting or crying out for forgiveness, he just went and told his brothers. And then now the offense is that just as Adam and Eve realized once they fell, they were ashamed of their nakedness, Ham should have experienced the same shame and, and not have approached his naked father, but he did. So he goes, tells his brothers, the two brothers then come in and realize what's happening, and they refuse to look upon the nakedness or the shame of his father. They, they take a coat, and they walk backwards into the point where they cover up their father. And then Noah awakes from, from his drunken stupor, and he realizes what had been done, and he curses Ham, but particularly Canaan, and he blesses Shem. Canaan is cursed. He will be the lowest of slaves to his brothers. And he also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. God of Shem. 
and Canaan will be Shem's slave. And, and Japheth, who also responded rightly, will spread throughout the earth and enjoy time in the tents of Shem, but let Canaan be Shem's slave. And then Noah lives 350 years after the flood. And Noah's life lasted 950 years, and then he dies. And there will be no one who will live that long again. And so we just simply see the fall repeating itself. And then God coming along with his covenant promise, the two lines, the two seeds. And, and Noah, is it not clear to you now how he basically is just another Adam? A priest king over, a renewed garden, a caretaker, a subduer. And just as Adam sinned by, by way of the fruit of the tree, Noah sinned by the fruit of the vine. And Adam had a, a, an unrighteous son and a righteous one. And, and Noah, in the same way, has both lineages that pass through him. And what Adam began, Noah, in essence, concludes this first great genealogy in the Bible. Noah, like Adam, was not perfect. And like Adam, he fell into unrighteousness. Friends, that is why the stories of the Bible must point us to Jesus Christ, because Jesus is the greater Noah. He's the greater Adam. He, he's the greater because the only thing that Noah can do to you, and he did, by the way, is give you a sin nature. Look, we're all a part of Noah's family. I mean, you, you, I got some weird cousins when I look at you. You got different looks, different skin colors, different backgrounds. It doesn't matter. We are all one family. And the one thing that Noah gave us was unrighteousness. He gave that to us. But we've got a dear brother in Jesus, do we not? And that high priest and great king of kings, by his grace, has given us his own righteousness. The only way you're righteous is because Christ has given it to you. And he gave it to you on the cross. Paul says this. God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. By faith in Jesus, you become God's right. Now, how do you weigh your unrighteousness? Well, I think we identify with it. I think we confess it. And then we come to our great God, who is a righteous judge, and we say, God, please, I do not want your wrath. I need salvation, and I need righteousness that can only come from someone 
outside of me who is much greater than me that did not bear the sin of Adam or Noah that was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death so that righteousness might be given to me so that I won't face judgment one day but I will have life eternal. And friends, that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. Let me pray with you. Father, if there's someone who has their sin and their unrighteousness still attached to them, please help them to understand that they can only one day face you as a judge. But because of Jesus Christ, they can have a Savior, and they can be forgiven, and they can be clothed with the righteousness of Christ so that when they relate to you, they are no longer a sinner but a child and a child of the promise. Father, Thank you for saving us. Save any today who, who plead for it and ask. And help us not to live obedient lives because of the righteousness that we have received so that we actually might imitate you as children that you love. Help us to imitate Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.